For the third Sunday in Ordinary Time, the Common Lectionary gives us this passage from the Gospel according to St. Matthew. This is chapter 4. This really is the first event in Jesus' public ministry. The only things that have gone before us in the Gospel of Matthew are his baptism in the Jordan by John and then his temptation in the desert. So this is the first day of his adult ministry. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. And he left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the lake in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. Those who sat in the region of the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon and Andrew, casting their nets into the lake, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. And immediately Andrew and Simon left their nets and followed him. And Jesus walked further down the beach and saw two other brothers, James and John, the son of Zebedee, sitting in their boat, mending their nets. And Jesus called them, and immediately they left their nets and their father and followed Jesus. And Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and sickness. And so his fame spread throughout Syria And they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he cured them. Pray with me, please. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. From birth, my father taught me the three central loyalties every young man should honor in order, God, Mom, and the Detroit Tigers. (laughs) And though I've been in the land of the Phillies, the land of the Yankees, now the land of the Cubs, I've maintained that loyalty my whole life. So 10 years ago, we were living in uh, Metro New York. Every member of my congregation was a Yankee fan. This is 2006. Very good year for the Tigers. American League champions. They'd beaten the Yankees in four games in the American League Division Series. And I was watching one of those games in the ALDS between the Yankees and the Tigers one evening, and I called to my wife in the other room. I said, Kathy, come here. Pudge is up. And she said, who's Pudge? And I said, Pudge is Detroit catcher Ivan Rodriguez. And she says, why do they call him Pudge? And I says, because he's five foot, nine inches tall, 205 pounds. (laughs) And ever since that day, Pudge has been her favorite baseball player just because of that nickname. Now, how did Pudge become a catcher, you ask? He is from a rural town in Puerto Rico, and he's been playing catch with his father since shortly after he learned to walk. And he always had a very good arm, so he loved to play third base and pitcher. But when he was eight years old, his father, also his baseball coach, took him aside and said, you have the great arm of a catcher. You're going to be a catcher. And Pudge says, I don't want to catch. I want to play third base. And his father says, you're going to catch. Pudge says he cried for 15 minutes, but then he became a catcher. 
At the age of 16, he was playing baseball in San Juan, and there was a scout from the Texas Rangers looking at a couple of other uh, catchers there, but he saw Pudge playing catch in the outfield, and he went over to Pudge and put him behind the plate and said, make a few throws down to second base. And Pudge threw one ball to second base, and the scout from the Rangers says, stop. And he took him over to the trunk of his car, and they signed a contract with the Texas Rangers, 16 years old. At 19, the Rangers called him up to the major leagues. The uh, Rangers were playing in Chicago. Pudge was playing at a minor league team in Florida. It was the day before his wedding. He was supposed to get married in that minor league park, but he got called up to Chicago. And in his first major league game with his first hit, he beat the White Sox with a two-run single in the top of the ninth. Last week, they voted Pudge into the Baseball Hall of Fame. He is the second catcher to get there in his first year of eligibility after, guess who, Johnny Bench. AL MVP, 14 All-Star Games, 13 Golden Gloves, 311 runs, 2,844 hits, the most for a catcher ever, 2,543 games, the most for a catcher ever, 59205. No, Pudge will go into the hall as a ranger, but still he is the first Tiger to get there since Al Kaline in the late 1970s. And I tell you this story because I'm interested in how we know what we're supposed to be doing and who we are. Who tells, who tells us who we are? So, this story that I just read from Matthew is the first public incident in Jesus' ministry, so it's hard to resist the parallels to what's been happening in Washington this week. Jesus' first public pronouncement, his inaugural address, if you will, is one line long, and it's cribbed from his cousin John, who'd said it before him, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, says Jesus. The Greek word is literally to change your mind. Change your mind. The Hebrew behind the Greek literally means turn around. Your life needs a U-turn. I was watching a high school football game once and a player picked up a fumble and began running towards the wrong end zone. That's what Jesus is saying. You're running the wrong way. You're going to score points for the wrong team. Run the other way. Now, our common adage is life is short and then you die. Jesus brightens that grim motto by giving it a pleasant quarter turn. Jesus says, life is short and then the kingdom comes. God's realm, God's Reich, God's reign, God's dominion, God's way, God's world. It's right around the corner. And then, of course, he has to appoint a cabinet. And just like in the district, no one could have predicted the people he calls to do this job. They were playing other games. They were doing other jobs. They looked underqualified, or at least differently qualified. So one day Jesus is strolling down the beach on the Sea of Galilee, and he sees these two brothers busy at their craft. They're tossing their disc-shaped, lead-weighted nets onto the surface of the water, watching them sink to the deeps and then pulling them back up full of fish, or so they hope. Jesus goes further down the beach and finds two other brothers, James and John, also busy at their craft. 
They're mending their fragile, sinker-weighted, dish-shaped nets in the prow of their beached boat. And to both sets of brothers, Andrew and Simon, James and John, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of people. And Matthew tells us that immediately, immediately they dropped their nets and followed Jesus. We don't know why. We don't know if this is the first time they'd ever laid eyes on Jesus or if they'd been lifelong friends. We don't know if this, is, if this little vignette is the culmination of a long conversation about future possibilities or if this is the first conversation they'd ever shared together. We don't know why they left what they knew to do what they didn't, but they did. Follow me and I'll teach you to do something you're not qualified for. Follow me and I will turn you into something you never dreamed of becoming. Follow me and I will show you how to transform the Roman Empire into God's empire. And that's just what they did. They were fishermen for Christ's sweet sake. Just ordinary guys. They weren't rich. They weren't poor. They were middle class from the hick town of Capernaum, a village of 1,000 farmers, fishermen, and shopkeeps. So, how is this straightforward, simple little story, God's word for you today? Well, I don't know. That's up to you. But try this on for size. This is a story of how God takes common folk and repurposes them for uncommon achievement, right? This is about your call. This is about your vocation. We don't use that word very much, but it's beautiful, isn't it? Our vocation. You know where it comes from, right? It comes from the Latin verb vocara, to call. And so vocation is related to words like voice and vocal, and vocabulary, and sada voce. Do you ever hear voices? I mean, in a good way. <laughs> who do you think you are? Who tells you who you are? You know, to your father, you will always be Billy or Bobby or Jimmy. To your children, you'll always be mom. To your older brother, you will always be knucklehead. At work, you're the rainmaker or the Terminator, to your golfing buddies, your Scratch, to Verizon, your 847-386-7959. What does God call you? What does, what does God call you to? Life is short, we commonly say. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, says Jesus. And since the kingdom is right around the corner, get ready for it. Sanctify your hours and your days. Baptize your energies. Consecrate your skills and your experience to vast and holy purpose. I love the way the poet Mary Oliver puts it. She says, so tell me, what is it you intend to do with your one wild and precious life? Yes, tell me, what is it you intend to do with your one wild and precious life? How does God speak to us a hundred ways, a hundred different times? Childhood, youth, in the middle of a flourishing career like Andrew and Simon. 
through wild dreams and patient mentors and snappy teachers and adoring parents and compelling experiences and mesmerizing books, sometimes through native endemic enthusiasms, right? It's just what we love. Frederick Buechner says, we're called to work at the place where our deep gladness meets the world's deep need. I heard a story of a middle school kid who came home enthusiastic about what she'd learned that day. When do they teach dissection in school? She was dissecting grasshoppers or frogs or rats. I don't know. But every day they did this, she came home just full of enthusiasm. She told her mother how much fun she was having and how good she was at it. And the mother said, well, honey, maybe you ought to be a surgeon when you grow up. She said, I don't want to be a surgeon. I want to be a coroner. Her mom said, a coroner? Why do you want to be a coroner? And she said, well, I want to operate on people, but I don't want their lives to depend on it. <laughs> so God calls us in all of these different ways. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Follow me, and I will show you how to share the good news of God's glad grace. I will show you how to extinguish dark ignorances. I will show you how to make lame beggars walk and blind men see. Jesus repurposes common folk for uncommon tasks. What do you bring to the table? Matt Fitzgerald is the senior minister at the St. Paul's United Church of Christ in Chicago, and Matt tells this story about how he went to go visit at the home of one of his families where the patriarch had died about an hour before. And so Matt got there, and the brand-new widow was in the bedroom saying goodbye to her husband's body. And Matt was sitting there at the kitchen table with another church friend and the teenage daughter of the deceased. And so they'd been sitting there for a while, and they were running out of things to say. What do you say to a teenager when her father's just died? It was getting awkward. And just then, the doorbell rang, and it was the plumber. Terrible timing. You see, what had happened is that the hospice nurse had followed protocol and tossed all the leftover medicines into the toilet. This broke the toilet. And so the plumber walks in. He didn't know this was happening. He didn't know what awaited him. He walks into this scene of raw grief, a brand-new widow saying goodbye to her husband's body and a weeping teenage daughter and a speechless pastor. You'd think he'd go straight to the bathroom and do his work, right? But he stopped and put his hand on the man's brow and he gave the widow a hug and he told the teenage daughter that her father had been a fine, fine man. And Matt, the pastor, says that in that home when that plumber walked in, something turned in the house. It was as if the pain fled or at least was met by a promise that the pain wouldn't last forever. God's grace come, comes disguised in a thousand ways, even in a plumber at a deathbed. The kingdom of God is at hand, says Jesus. Follow me and I will teach you to speak a precious word of hope into the slough of despond, to light a lamp against the smothering darkness of unknowing, to cast out the dementors. One last thing, and then I'll quit. Do you know what they called computers before they were called computers? 
They called them Turing machines after Alan Turing, the British mathematician who is the father of computer science. Alan Turing built his proto-computers to break codes. He was the one who broke the Nazis' Enigma code by which they transmitted all of their top-secret battlefield information, especially about U-boats in the North Atlantic. Now, Amazon is giving away for free this film called The Imitation Game with Benedict Cumberbatch as Alan Turing, so I watched it the other night. And the film admits up front that it's based on a true story, so I don't know histor how historically accurate it is. But the way The Imitation Game tells the story is that Alan Turing was painfully shy, socially awkward. Today, if he were alive today, we'd say that he was on the spectrum. You know, um, the nuances of human communication were as cryptic to him as computer code is to most of the rest of us. He had no idea about jokes or sarcasm or facial expressions, all these subtleties by which we communicate to each other. He had more than one male lover, and in 1952, he was convicted of gross indecency for having a sexual relationship with a man. He was this unique personality, brutally aware of how different he was from everybody else in so many ways. And in the film, when his life is in shambles, his old friend Joan Clark shows up to cheer him up. And in the film, at least, she says the loveliest thing. She says, do you know, this morning, I was on a train that traveled through a city that might not exist if it weren't for you. I bought a ticket from a man who would probably be dead if it weren't for you. Reading up in my work a whole field of scientific inquiry that wouldn't exist if it weren't for you. Now, if you wish you could have been normal, I can promise you that's not what I wish. The world is an infinitely better place because you weren't normal. And then she says, sometimes it's the people who no one imagines anything of who go on to do things no one can imagine. Historians guess that by himself, Alan Turing shortened the war by two years and saved 14 million lives. Sometimes it's the people who no one imagines anything of who go on to do things no one can imagine like Andrew and Simon and James and John. No one would have ever picked them to change the Roman Empire. No one but Jesus, who specializes in repurposing common folk to uncommon achievement. People like you and me. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.